You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Peter 6, verse 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, I'm Coy, and I should have brought sunscreen for sure. I'm the associate pastor here. It's so good to see you all. Well, I can't really see you all. I'll be squinting most of this one. Uh, but it's so good to see you all here on this uh, bright afternoon. And uh, a few years ago, while studying in a Bible college in Calgary, Canada, uh, where I lived had a healthy population of coyotes, wild coyotes, which were not known to be too vicious but still threatening enough that people had to be careful. And I remember encountering one up close uh, on a walk, and my instinct was to, like, roadrunner out of there, right? Of course. But thankfully, a good friend of mine, a native Calgarian, had told me earlier that if I'm ever faced with one, to not leg it, but stand firm, hold my position and keep looking at it, impose myself, hold my ground, and it should back off. So just as I was about to do that, the coyote started running the opposite way anyway. So good. Turns out it wasn't a coyote, but somebody was taking their dog out for a run. Right? <laughs> that was my near-death experience. Right? See, as Peter closes his letter to the first century Christian listeners of Asia Minor, he finishes with this plea to stand firm. Hold fast to your position. Resist the temptation to be moved from where you stand. And Peter is making this final call to his listeners because all throughout his first letter, Peter has been reminding the Christian of who they are in Christ and how they are to live in light of that, that they've been born again by the resurrection of Jesus, Now that they've been called to be a holy nation, no longer a people of the world, but a people of God, sojourners whose home isn't here, but one in eternity with the Lord. But in the meantime, while, while residing here as a people of God, they are to live in a way that, that points to God, meaning faithfully living and subject to all sorts of authorities and institu- institutions, uh, even if they were persecuted, suffering, or even treated unjustly for it. That's what we've been reading in First Peter. Peter's appeal to the believer was that they are to suffer for righteousness' sake, that while doing good may result in harsh consequences from the unbelieving world around them, that they are to live faithfully just as their saviour Jesus did. And so most of this letter from Peter has been about Christians navigating through life 
as outcasts, as those rejected by the world, suffering for following the suffering servant himself, Jesus. See, our passage today is Peter's final charge to all his Christian listeners who know that suffering will come their way as they walk in obedience to Christ. Stand firm, Peter says. Don't be moved by the winds of the world, don't the crashing waves of culture, but hold fast onto what he says in verse 12, the true grace of God. And I think Peter shows us three ways that help us in our standing firm, that we stand firm by being humble, we stand firm by being vigilant, and we stand firm by being trusting. See, with these three things, Peter has neatly given us an attitude, an action, and an assurance to have in our standing firm in the face of worldly opposition. So first, to keep us grounded in our calling as God's people, we are to have an attitude of humility, to be humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, last week in chapter 5, Peter ended his appeal to the church, to the leaders and the congregations to clothe themselves with humility in relation to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Today in our passage, Peter continues that theme of humility, but now he speaks about humility in, with, in the importance of uh, relation to God, that Christians are to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God whether it be the first century or 21st century Christians alike, I think for all believers, humility remains a beautifully challenging thing to uphold. Beautiful because when we see it, it's so evident and memorable. Like when you see somebody who exudes humility, you can't help but remember them. The humble heart attitude in a person is always so obvious in how they live, how they speak, how they think, that you can't help but think positively about them. Like there's an aura, humility spreads, which is why Peter tells the church to be all humble in how they treat one another. It's contagious. It's necessary for the people of God. And yet it's also challenging, so challenging, because we're surrounded by a world that does everything to make humility impossible be yourself, go get yours, look out for number one, look out yourself highly, not lowly. So humility becomes challenging because every day we're fighting against the world that promotes pride and selfishness over humility and selflessness. But even worse, every day we're fighting our natural instinct to want to sin, that we would much rather lean into our own pride than humility. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And so obedience through humility is often the harder choice as we battle our internal desires to disobey, added in with the external noise to live pridefully. It's a hard thing to be humble, beautifully challenging. And yet Peter is clear and concise as he could possibly be. Humble yourselves, be humble. Because as a Christian who has just heard what Peter has said all throughout his letter, that we will be rejected, that we will be scorned, that we will be mocked, that we will be persecuted, we will suffer for doing what's good. Without humility, we will not stand firm, but we will inevitably fall. What Peter has prepared for us in this letter is much like the first century Christians of Asia Minor, that our suffering more or less comes in the form of social persecution. We will be deemed here in Melbourne, in Australia, as foolish 
ignorant, bigots, and inhumane. As Stephen McAlpine says, we'll be the bad guys of society. We'll be attacked by society on all fronts. Humiliation will result in our following Jesus. And so naturally, our instincts as humans will be to defend ourselves, to, to want to retaliate, to respond in kind. Because of our faith, our social status suffers and becomes difficult. So our temptation is not to become uh, even lowlier, but instead to rise up. And I think it's fitting that Peter appeals the believer to humble themselves, especially under the mighty hand of God. Because I think when we face this kind of social persecution today, especially when we don't humble ourselves before God, we'll most likely do three things. First, we'll believe that we don't need God. I think why Peter reminds us to be humble is because its counterpart, pride, is so dangerous. What pride does very subtly and very well is make a Christian believe that you don't actually need God, that you are enough. You alone can get through this. You can persevere. You can find the solution. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And so in the face of unjust suffering, when we are not humble, we'll find it easier to be proud. And we feel like we actually don't need God. We no longer trust his wisdom. We disregard his truths. We think we can control our situations. See, in your pride, it has you choosing words that you think your unjust boss deserves rather than seek God's word on the situation. I don't need you, God. You prefer defiance over submission because you think about your reputation rather than God's reputation. I don't need you, God. You retaliate aggressively because society says it's your right instead of looking to faithfully respond in righteousness. I don't need you, God. An attitude of pride over humility will be our downfall because what we inevitably do is push aside the only one who can help us in our trials. Pride will lift us up and push God down. Peter says, humble yourselves. You aren't wiser than the God who created you. Proverbs 2 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You don't have control over all your situations. Proverbs 19, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You aren't good enough, worthy enough, tough enough to take on unjust suffering in your own strength. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When we are humble, we remember exactly the God we worship and our standing with him as his people. To the humble Christian, he or she stands firm. As according to chapter 4, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. To the prideful Christian, he or she stands shakily as they entrust their souls to their faltering selves. So clothe yourselves with humility, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As Psalm chapter 9 says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We do need God more than ever 
in our current climate. Only he is our stronghold. Humble yourselves and need him. Understandably, as Christians, when going through suffering, many of us may feel backed into a corner, feel frustrated, which makes me think of the second thing that we're tempted to do when we don't humble ourselves. We blame God. Uh, In 2005, a convicted murderer in a Romanian prison sued God for his troubled life. The man filed a suit in which he requested legal action against God, resident in heaven and represented here by the Romanian Orthodox Church for committing the following crimes, cheating, concealment, abuse against people's interests, taking bribes and traffic of influence. The man even noted that God even claimed and received from me various goods and prayers in exchange for forgiveness and the promise that I would be rid of problems and have a better life. His case was dropped. In a less extreme way, similarly for Christians, in our hardest of trials, we may find ourselves pointing the finger at God and blaming him for our unjust suffering. Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? God, do you even love me? Which is where Peter reminds us to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we risk losing our jobs, our friends, our family, our status, our respect, our livelihoods for following Jesus, understandably, feelings of anxiety will come. And so when Peter encourages us to cast our anxieties on God, to entrust ourselves to God and continue to do good, I think when we do that, it is us humbling ourselves before him because you're giving up what weighs you down into the hands of God and trusting him with it and through it. John Piper says, casting your anxiety on God is not simply a separate thing that you do after you humble yourself. It's something you do in order to humble yourself or in the process of humbling yourself. And I think that makes sense because have you ever noticed those times when you're anxious about something, like you're going through an unfair hardship and are worried about what's going to happen next? Yet you feel a peace when you give it to God, praying to him. A relief when you read the words from God's word that he can give you a peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding. A confident humility because you know the almighty and gracious God in scripture and the one you worship and you know that he cares for you. Instead of blaming God at your lowest points, Instead, give your worries to him because he cares for you. Psalm 139 sings of how God knows you better than you know yourself. Romans 8 verse 28 says, He works all things for your good, even your faithful suffering. So come to him humbly with open hands and entrust him with your anxieties, giving it to him prayerfully, in thanksgiving, remembering his promises, knowing that our God cares for you. I think knowing that God cares for you while enduring suffering, unjust suffering, is so important because when we don't, what it can sadly do is quite the opposite and make us quite hostile towards him. See, the third thing we'll likely do when we don't have an attitude of humility in our suffering is that we'll likely resent God. 
So it can be extremely disheartening when you're awaiting help. Promise rescue when you ask for it. You don't get it when you need it. For a Christian, this can feel especially true when we go through some of our hardest trials and yet feel like God isn't there. Like, God, why didn't you deliver me from that workplace where I'm treated like a reject every day? God, why am I still struggling in this marriage and you, don't, and you won't have my spouse believe in you, God? Why? Why is this society, God, adamant on making it worse for us, Lord? These are common thoughts and feelings believers have when faced with unjust suffering, that feeling that God isn't doing anything, where things get worse. And so naturally what happens in our heart is we resent God, feel like he won't respond or help anyway. So we go to other things for help, other devices, sources of comfort, even religions. The reality for Peter's listeners is it's hard to suffer for doing good. That's our reality. It is hard. Often it feels like there's no end to it. It can be difficult when you obey faithfully and yet receive an even harsher response. It can be disheartening when we ask God for help and you don't get the answer that you want. It can start to feel like perhaps God isn't there because nothing is changing. You feel bitter towards him. You lose patience. To that, Peter says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. And there's something to note about Peter's words under his mighty hand here because this description was intentionally said because it echoes the language used in the book of Exodus where God would tell Moses more than once that by his mighty hand he will deliver his people Israel out of the clutches of Pharaoh. Exodus 13, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery for a mighty hand the Lord brought you out from this place. What Peter is doing is reminding his listeners that the same God who delivered his people out of Egypt is the same God who is with you in your suffering now. Scholar Scott McKnight says, as God's mighty hand was seen in the plagues of Egypt, of Exodus, so his mighty hand is now being seen in the persecution the believers in Asia Minor are experiencing. See, for the first century Christians who are suffering and waiting for deliverance, to us listening today, waiting for deliverance, to all those who may be resenting God, Peter encourages you to remain humble. Remember who you worship the faithful God, the deliverer God, the God whose mighty hand is with you. Don't begrudge him in your suffering, but wait on him. Trust in him. The God of Israel promised to deliver his people then, and he did. The same God promises to deliver his people now, and he will. And so we must be patient because Peter says it will happen at the proper time where he will then exalt you. What I think Christians often mistake is thinking that God's deliverance is one that follows our timing rather than his. That each time we suffer, that we expect God to take us out of it when we call on him. But Peter, all throughout his first letter, he's been appealing to his listeners to not think like this, to not resent God in your suffering, but to see him in it. See God in your suffering. 
that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, Peter says. That you humble yourselves to see the glory of God and what he's doing in your circumstance rather than reject him for not taking you out of your circumstance. Because while we may not immediate, he, may, he may not immediately take you out of your suffering situation, one day it will all make sense. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There will come a time where we will all see that our faithful suffering was worth it when Christ's glory is revealed. See, with Peter saying that God will, at the proper time, exalt you, is him saying that there will be vindication. The day Christ returns, the unjust will face justice. And your suffering, your faithful suffering, will be vindicated as you are exalted in the glory of God. All that humiliation and demeaning that has come your way as a result of your faith will one day cease at the proper time that you humbly adhered to your faith in Christ, humbly obeyed him in submitting to authorities, humbly suffered for righteousness' sake, you will be exalted when Christ appears and the whole world will see its foolishness in rejecting him. In all this, I think why Peter tells all believers to humble themselves first is because when we humble ourselves, we not only remember who we are, but we more importantly remember who he is. We remember that God is the stronghold for the sufferer, and he will not forsake you. We remember that he is faithful to deliver those whom he has promised. We remember that he cares for you, and we can entrust all our troubles to him and continue on doing good. As sojourners of this world, Elect exiles, as Peter has called us. Our attitude of humility says less about us and more about God, that we really do need him. And we can only stand firm in his true grace by humbling ourselves under his mighty hand. But we do so joyfully, knowing that he cares for us, knowing of the glory to come. But while we live here as sojourners, Not everybody cares for us like God does. In fact, there's an enemy who wants to destroy us. And so Peter makes the plea to his listeners. It's here that Peter, in his passage, moves from having a right attitude of humility to a call to action. Because this enemy will do whatever he can to shake those who stand firm. Peter calls us to be vigilant. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We've heard Peter call his listeners to be sober-minded before, urging the the first-century Christian to have self-control as they came from a background of much drunkenness. But what's noteworthy here is Peter's appeal to be watchful, to be on guard, to be alert, to be vigilant. For the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter here is talking about Satan. And it's important here that he calls him our 
adversary. Scripture tells us once an angel of God who fell from his position due to sin with his pride leading to his fall and God removing him from his exalted role and position, Satan has since been known to be completely opposed to God, doing everything in his power to thwart God's plans and purposes. John chapter 10 verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is Satan. He's the enemy of God, called the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the crafty snake in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and succeeded. He is God's adversary, but he is also ours. Because as Christians, you are now God's allies. You're now not of the world where Satan rules, but of God, a people under God's rule, a holy nation who shines his light in the darkest of places. And so as God's people, we have put a target on our back. Satan, the enemy of God, now sees us as his enemy. Satan would do anything and everything in his power to oppose God and those who follow God. And he does so by prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour. If you've seen those uh, Animal Kingdom docos before, specifically ones on lions, as the apex predators, you'd be struck by how terrifying lions are when they hunt. It's not Lion King, guys. It's a lot worse. This is the same type of imagery Peter is painting for us of our adversary, the devil. That he's walking around angry and hungry, roaring and showing his big teeth hoping to find someone to sink his fangs into. This is, very, this is a very different description to that of the crafty snake in the Garden of Eden, a creature who slyly slithers around, deceptive and crafty as a snake uh, sneaks up on you to bite your heel. No, Satan here is described as the opposite, aggressive and ruthless, an angry adversary whose aim is to attack you head on and to overpower you with his jaws. The thing about lions is they often prey on the weak. The mountain lion actually stalks their prey, looking for the weakest, the, the young, the injured, the sick, and then pounces at the right time. What a perfect description of what Satan tries to do to the Christian going through unjust suffering when you feel most vulnerable, weak and fragile for being treated so unfairly, injured, emotionally, physically, spiritually suffering. This is when the devil pounces, looking to sink his fangs in, and he attacks you in a range of ways, ways that aren't necessarily obvious, like a rule line, but attacks you spiritually. He attacks you by using his agents of the world to reject you, to uh, exile you, to assault you, even to kill you for being allies of God. He attacks you by enticing you with the idols of the world, attacks you by drawing you away from the rest of the flock. He attacks you by muddling the truth. He attacks you by accusing you before God. He attacks you by making you fear going to God. Pastor D.A. Carson says, the devil is not trying to sneak up on you. He's trying to terrify you make you afraid, fill you with anxieties, and keep you off balance and nervous. His aim is to destroy Christians through suffering. He aims to make us doubt the goodness, the presence, the power, and the compassion of God. This is a powerful, convincing, creative, and ruthless adversary. Peter warns that the threat 
of the enemy is a very real one. We can't ignore him as we so easily do in our Western context, but know that there is a spiritual war going on. The unjust suffering we receive is evidence that we are in a war. The devil roams around seeking to terrify you. His tactics is to wear you down, that you be tempted to doubt God and his goodness, hoping that you turn to him instead of, and the things of the world instead of turning to God. And so when we recognize that our war is one that is spiritual, we ought to prepare in such a way. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul was talking to the church in Ephesus on how to stand firm against the war tactics of Satan. That a Christian's fight isn't against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. And so how we do that is by putting on the whole armor of God, fastening on the belt of truth putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the the sword of the spirit. Paul and Peter have both made aware to believers the threat of the devil and the war he has waged on the lives of many. How needed is Paul's call here to put on the armor of God in defense to Satan's schemes? Paul has given us a real and tangible way to resist the devil, especially in times of suffering. We could legit do a whole sermon series on the whole armor of God, so I won't be able to delve into each armor piece today, unfortunately. But what I can point out is this. Notice how the pieces of armor directly counter the ways the devil attacks. The devil will try to muddle the truth, so fasten on the belt of truth. He will try to make you live like the world, so put on the breastplate of righteousness. He will try to silence you from sharing the good news, so tie on the shoes of readiness to share the gospel of peace. He will try to discourage you, so take up your shield of faith. Try to condemn you, so put on your helmet of salvation. Try to destroy you, so take up the sword of the Spirit. Paul is adamant that the armor of God will help us against the threat of the devil, will help us stand firm especially in our suffering. So put it on, because the roaring lion is roaming. But going back to our passage, Peter too gives his listeners a needed encouragement and help in the fight. Peter says in verse 9, Resist him, be firm in your faith, stand firm, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters around the world. And I just love that Peter's way of encouragement, uh, encouraging us against the devil's schemes, uh, is to think about other Christians around the globe, because it seems such a unique yet peculiar response from Peter, but there's good reason for it. Because you see, for the first century Christian listening to Peter's words, the fear of isolation and loneliness was very real, because there were such small congregations in Asia Minor living opposed to a massive, massively big uh, secular world, it was easy for them, the Christians of Asia Minor, to feel alone as the early outpost church, uh, churches of Peter's day. As they suffered, they would have easily felt like an ant against the boot, that it was just a matter of time before they'd be squished and no longer exist. But Peter knew that in order for the gospel 
to survive Asia Minor, that these small flock could not be scattered by the roaring lion, but instead they must make a stand against him, stand firm and hold on to the good news of Jesus. So Peter would encourage him in a way where they would feel like and know that they were not alone, but they were truly a part of something, that they weren't just a small church in Asia Minor, but part of a holy nation, God's holy nation where in their suffering they could draw on the strength of the Almighty God, but they could draw also encouragement from the solidarity that they share with other believers around the world. There's a comfort to know others are going through what you're going through, a peace knowing that you're not alone in your suffering and persecution, a joy knowing that God has you a part of something bigger, that his good news has not just been made known to you or the person sitting next to you, but to multitudes of brothers and sisters across the globe and all throughout history that share in the truth and confidence of the grace of God that even means in their suffering. It's like if you follow sports, it's like sharing in the joys and heartaches with others who you know follow the same team around the globe. There's a special camaraderie right? Like it's encouraging to know for me that as an Adelaide Crows supporter, I have thousands, perhaps billions of other supporters who together we fly as one and we cry as one. There's a lot of crying. But a camaraderie in the gospel is leaps and bounds better than any sport or club or community because this is a unity based on being in the family of God. God's own people, one that is intimately shared by the true grace of God. That while the powers of sin and darkness may be closing in on you, the roaring lion may be ready to pounce, you can fight off Satan's onslaughts of lies and attacks because you know that you are shoulder to shoulder with an army of believers. You are in this war together and you have a battalion of others that are with you, maybe not physically there, but with you in prayer, in spirit and unity. See, while other Christians' suffering may not be identical to yours, just like you, they hold on to the same joy and knowledge that God cares for them just as he cares for you. You are united, a people of God's own possession. So as Galatians 6 verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, a camaraderie. But while Peter's believers were likely feeling alone and isolated, I think many of them were also feeling run down and frustrated by their suffering, perhaps even angry. So in Peter's reminder that suffering was being experienced by the brotherhood around the world, he's also telling his listeners that, guys, you are not being singled out. That suffering is a part of normal Christianity. Don't feel picked on. Don't feel like God has turned on you. Don't feel like God has lost control over everything. But suffering is expected in the life of everybody who follows Jesus. Just look at your brothers and sisters around the world, is what Peter is saying. God hasn't singled you out for some kind of special treatment of suffering. But actually, as Peter said earlier, suffering is a means of purification for all his people. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, Peter said. It's part and parcel for all believers, not just you. This is a part of the Christian calling. Our own saviour 
suffered unjustly. So remember that and resist the devil. See, now that his listeners know for certain that the devil roams around looking to tear them down through their suffering, what Peter does at the end of his final charge is he gives us a needed assurance, so needed that as suffering Christians, we must stand firm and we do so by being trusting. In verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. For all the suffering that we will certainly go through as Christians, verse 10 sure does sound like reprieve, that the suffering lasts only a little while. But what does Peter mean by these words? Does he mean a week? Does he mean a month, a year, a lifetime? See, Peter uses the exact same words a little while earlier on his letter in chapter 1, where in verse 5 he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Peter uses the words little while in chapter one, he refers it to the last time, the time where the revelation of Jesus will be made known once again when he returns. So here in our passage today, when we see that Peter writes, we will suffer for a little while, Peter means suffering will go throughout our lifetime. And that can sound daunting, even defeating, as we prepare for suffering that could last our entire lives. But Peter encourages us that a lifetime sounds long, but it is only a little while. It is a vapour in the grand scheme of eternity. And so while we suffer a little while now, the God of all grace has promised to you who faithfully obey him that he will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. That to the suffering believer, your home is not here. Your home is one in eternity in the glory of Christ where his dominion and reign are forever and ever. When you have suffered and endured to the end, God has promised these things to you. So we can stand firm by believing that, by trusting that. All that fire that you're being put through in this life will result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, stand firm, brothers and sisters. See, it's been quite an amazing series going through First Peter because I think it really speaks to us as socially outcast Christians of today. But not only that, why I love Peter's letter so much is because he was a man who we got to see in Scripture have his life changed so clearly, so evidently in God's Word. When Peter was alongside Jesus in Jesus' ministry, he was easily the most prideful of the 12. He rebuked Jesus. Imagine trying to correct Jesus. Peter lashed out and cut off a soldier's ear when Jesus faced arrest. 
Yet as we read in his letter today, Peter calls Jesus' followers to not be prideful, but be humble. He also calls us to be vigilant against the devil and to be trusting of God. Yet so many times has he shown that he wasn't any of these. Peter losing faith in the ocean as he walked on the water and started sinking. Peter falls asleep when Jesus tells him to be awake, to be alert in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter cowered before a servant girl, denying that he ever knew Jesus, denying Jesus three times and disassociating himself with the Savior completely. Peter was a man with so many faults, a flawed man, a sinful man, and yet a man who Jesus loved and Jesus died for. In Luke 22, as Jesus and his disciples shared the Lord's Supper the night before he would head to the cross, Peter says this, uh, Jesus says this to Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says that to Peter. Peter could only exhort us to be humble, to be vigilant, to be trusting, to stand firm because he has full confidence in who Jesus is, that Jesus was exactly who he said he is, the saviour of the world who humbly came to suffer the sinner's death on behalf of sinners, you and I, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, to those who believe and follow him, a crown of glory awaits. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall have, will not perish, but have eternal life. See, Peter, upon witnessing Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter was so confident that his future was absolutely certain. That in following Jesus, while it may mean a, lo- a lifetime of suffering and persecution, which it did for Peter, yet Peter knew it all to be worth it. And he says the same to us today. That as writer Marshall Siegel says, suffering will not be the last note of your life, but the joy, the comfort, the peace of knowing the true grace of God, glory in Christ Jesus, that lasts for eternity. So sitting on a hill, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Peter, a sinful man changed completely by the power of your grace. Lord, help humble us as a people under your mighty hand that we may never forget who you are, that you are faithful, that you, that as you delivered your people then from Egypt, you have promised deliverance for us, your people now. That in our being treated unjustly, that our suffering, that in our suffering and in our persecution today, that we can be certain that you are faithful to your promise. That our trials and anxieties are only for a little while and that there will be one day vindication and exalting, that our suffering for righteousness' sake was all worth it for the glory of Jesus. Protect us, God, against the lion who seeks to devour, 
Help us resist him by your spirit that in our seasons of suffering, we may put on your armor to fight his schemes, that we remember that we are a part of something bigger, an entire people of your own possession. Help us be faithful and trusting of you, standing firm, knowing that you care for us as seen most clearly in the life, death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. May we hold on to the true grace of God. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.